and everyone in the audience should know this, there are things coming down the pipeline on the artificial intelligence front that are just going to make your hair stand on end within the next year. Because there is so much transformation going on in that domain. It's almost unimaginable. How many of you know what ChatGPT is? So I'll tell you what ChatGPT is, just so you know, because you need to know this. And I don't know what sort of technological revolution this is. Gutenberg press level? It's something like that. This is a big deal. Now, it's already sophisticated enough. I went on to it last week and I said, okay, some of you know I, I've written these books, 12 Rules for Life, and then Beyond Order, 12 More Rules, because, you know, you can't have enough rules. And I asked it, this is what I asked it to do. I said, write me an essay that's a 13th rule for Beyond Order, written in a style that combines the King James Bible with the Tao Te Ching. That's a pretty difficult that's pretty difficult to pull off, you know? Any one of those things is hard. The intersection of all three, that's impossible. Well, it wrote it in about three seconds, four pages long, and it isn't obvious to me, for better or worse, that I would be able to tell that I didn't write it. And quite impressive philosophically, I also had it write an essay on the intersection between the Taoist version of ethical morality and the ethics that are outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, which it just nailed, got that dead right, brilliant. Again, it took it about three seconds. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 834 the rise of artificial intelligence, how an analysis of Mormon humor broke ChatGPT. Now, that was Jordan Peterson, by the way, in that introduction that I just played for you. It's something that I found on YouTube this past week that took me down a rabbit hole that I'm going to take you along with, along, for, along through. I'm going to take you down the rabbit hole with me or whatever, because AI is coming. And AI is here, and the world is getting ready to change, I think. Because we're living in the last days, right? I mean, I was raised to believe that I was living in the last days. And even though Bruce R. McConkie somehow overlooked the rise of AI as one of the many signs of the times back when he wrote Mormon Doctrine all those years ago, he probably should have seen it coming. Because I think that AI is really going to transform society in just amazing ways and I'm so ready for it but I actually may have messed it all up you see because I had my first chat with the artificial intelligence chat GPT today and I think I might have broken it now I'll show you exactly what I mean in a minute but first 
I'm thinking about starting another study group like I did a year and a half ago, whenever it was, because there's so many things that are going on in the world and I'm excited to discuss them and explore them. So if you're interested in participating in a free study group, please email me at infantsonthrones at gmail.com and let's see what we can do. All right. And now, Alright, I think I just broke... <laughs> Alright, I think I just broke ChatGPT, which is this AI language model, which I just recently found out about. I guess it was launched back November 30th of 2022, and then there was a recent release on February 13th. Uh, I've seen a lot of people talking about this, uh, as artificial intelligence is creeping into our world and about to change things in a big way, it sure seems like. So I thought, why don't I go on and, and try it out? <laughs> so I'm going to read you the conversation that I just had with this artificial intelligence, and I think I broke it. I think I broke it. So I first started, I said, hello, what can you do? And it said, hello, with an exclamation mark. Like that's, and it was excited. It was excited to engage with me. It said, hello, as an AI language model, I'm trained to perform a variety of tasks, such as one, answering questions. You can ask me any question and I'll do my best to provide you with an accurate and helpful answer. Two, generating text. I can generate text on a wide range of topics from creative writing to technical reports. Three, translation. I can translate text between different languages. Four, summarizing. I can summarize long text into shorter, more manageable summaries. Five, conversation. I can engage in conversation with you on a wide range of topics and provide you with personalized responses. And six, learning. I can continue to learn and improve my abilities over time as I process more data and receive feedback. Let me know how I can assist you, again with the exclamation mark. I mean, this ChatGPT might be like an early AI, but I think it cares. So the first question that I asked, of course, what question would you ask ChatGPT? I was just curious. I already know the answer to this question, but I asked it anyway. I think I know the answer. Who wrote the Book of Mormon? And ChatGPT says, According to the beliefs of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church, the Book of Mormon was written by ancient prophets who lived in the Americas around 2,600 years ago. The book tells the story of people who lived in the Americas before and after the time of Christ and their interactions with God. The prophet Moroni is said to have compiled the various records into the Book of Mormon and buried the plates in the ground, where they were later discovered by Joseph Smith in the early 19th century. Joseph Smith translated the text from the plates by the gift and power of God, and the Book of Mormon was first published in 1830. That's what it said. And so I asked a follow-up question. I said, I asked, are there anachronisms in the Book of Mormon? <laughs> and ChatGBC said, yes, there are several anachronisms in the Book of Mormon, which have been a subject of debate and criticism by some scholars and critics. An anachronism is something that is out of place in time, meaning it does not fit within the historical or cultural context of a particular time period. Some examples of anachronisms in the Book of Mormon include 1. Horses. 
The Book of Mormon refers to horses as being used by ancient American civilizations, but horses are believed to have become extinct in the Americas thousands of years before the events described in the book. 2. Steel. The Book of Mormon refers to the use of steel weapons by ancient American civilizations, but steel as we know it today did not exist in the Americas until after the arrival of Europeans. 3. Silk. The Book of Mormon refers to the use of silk by ancient American civilizations, but silk production did not exist in the Americas until after the arrival of Europeans. 4. Wheat and Barley The Book of Mormon describes the cultivation of wheat and barley in ancient America, but there's no archaeological evidence to support the existence of these crops in the Americas before the arrival of the Europeans. These anachronisms have been the subject of debate among scholars and critics and some have offered alternative explanations for the inclusion in the Book of Mormon. However, the presence of anachronisms in the text is generally viewed as evidence that the book was not written by ancient American prophets as claimed by the LDS Church. Wow. You know, and, and here's the thing, and I say kind of wow with tongue in cheek. You know, the, the thing, it's so interesting to have this chat with ChatGPT because I'm watching this text come up on screen um, you know, I mean, this is an area that I'm pretty familiar with, so I'm able to look at it and go, okay, where's it? Where's its information coming from? It seems like it's pretty accurate from what it's, you know, this very narrow example that I'm giving it. So I kept going. I said, how many total anachronisms are in the Book of Mormon? Because I really wanted to test this thing. And it said, the exact number of anachronisms of the Book of Mormon is difficult to determine, as different scholars and critics may identify different anachronistic elements depending on their methodology and perspective. I love that answer, by the way. It's so, like, comprehensive. However, various analyses have identified dozens of potential anachronisms in the text. For example, a study by Gerald and Sandra Tanner, who are critics of the LDS Church, identified over 350 anachronisms in the Book of Mormon, including references to animals, plants, technologies, and cultural practices that did not exist in the Americas during the time period described in the book. However, other scholars have challenged some of the Tanner's claims and suggested alternative interpretations for some of the supposedly anachronistic elements. It's worth noting that the question of anachronisms in the Book of Mormon is a complex and controversial one, and opinions on the matter vary widely. Some people believe that the presence of anachronisms in the text is evidence that it is not an authentic ancient document, while others believe that the anachronisms can be explained in various ways and do not necessarily disprove the book's authenticity. And then I decided to like really swing for the, the fences with this AI thing because I, th there was a video I watched recently where uh, they were talking about an artificial intelligence within Google that one of the tech, uh, technicians believed had gained like self-awareness and then they published a transcript of the text. It was really interesting. I, I, I don't know how <laughs> accurate any of this stuff is. I really don't. But it's fascinating. So I decided, well, let, let's, let's see if this AI language model has an opinion of its own. So I said, what do you think about the authenticity of the Book of Mormon? And it said, as an AI language model, I do not have personal beliefs or opinions. However, it is important to note that the question of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon is a complex and controversial one, and opinions on the matter vary widely. 
According to the beliefs of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church, the Book of Mormon is a true account of ancient American history and was translated by Joseph Smith by the gift and power of God. However, many scholars and critics have challenged the authenticity of the book, citing various issues such as anachronisms, inconsistencies, and lack of archaeological evidence. The question of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon is ultimately a matter of personal belief, and individuals must evaluate the available evidence and make their own judgments based on their own criteria and standards of evidence. I like that. So it, at least at this stage in the interaction of AIs and humans, they're encouraging our own autonomy, which as a therapist in training is perfectly in alignment with the ACA code of ethics. It's one of the main, <laughs> one of the main goals of therapy is to create a sense of autonomy in the client and so and not to enforce the beliefs or biases of the therapist on uh, their client so way to go way to go chat gpt you're you're ethical according to the aca code of ethics at least from what i've seen here but i kept going i didn't stop here because this was fun and so i asked are there any passages from the book of mormon that are plagiarized from earlier texts and it said yes there are several passages in the Book of Mormon that are similar to passages from earlier texts, including the King James Version of the Bible and other contemporary sources. One example of this is the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in both the New Testament of the Bible and the Book of Mormon. The version of the Sermon of the Mount in the Book of Mormon is similar in many respects to the King James Version of the Bible, with some differences in wording and phrasing. There are also several other passages in the Book of Mormon that are similar to passages from other texts, such as the Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon, which closely follow the King James Version of the Bible. Some scholars and critics have argued that these similarities suggest that the author of the Book of Mormon borrowed extensively from other texts, while others have suggested that the similarities are evidence of common cultural and linguistic influences. It's worth noting that the question of plagiarism in the Book of Mormon is a complex and controversial one, and opinions on the matter vary widely. You know, I like the I like the power of this chat GPT, this this AI that can like I don't know what its database is, how what it's pulling from, but it gives information pretty quickly as you're about to see, because I asked it to do some more complicated things. So the next question I asked was what are the most common themes found in the Book of Mormon? And it gave me this answer in just like a matter of seconds. It said, The Book of Mormon contains a variety of themes and messages that are central to the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church. Here are some of the most common themes found in the book. One, faith in Jesus Christ. The Book of Mormon teaches that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior of the world. The book encourages readers to develop a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and to have faith in His atoning sacrifice. Two, repentance. The Book of Mormon teaches that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that repentance is necessary for forgiveness and spiritual growth. 3. Obedience to God's Commandments The Book of Mormon contains numerous commandments and guidelines for living a righteous life, including the importance of keeping the Sabbath day holy, serving others, and avoiding sin. 4. Service The Book of Mormon emphasizes the importance of serving others and putting the needs of others before our own. The book encourages readers to be kind, compassionate, and generous to those around them. Boy. <laughs> okay. Five. The plan of salvation. 
The Book of Mormon provides a detailed account of God's plan for his children, including the creation of the world, the fall of Adam and Eve, and the atonement of Jesus Christ. The book teaches that God has a plan for each of us, and that by following his commandments, he can return to live with him after this life. 6. The Importance of Family The Book of Mormon teaches that the family is the fundamental unit of society and that strong families are essential to God's plan. The book emphasizes the importance of marriage, parenthood, and the responsibilities of family members to one another. These are just a few of the most common themes found in the Book of Mormon. The book covers a wide range of topics and contains many insights and teachings that are relevant to modern life. So take that, ex-Mormon haters. All right, and now <laughs> I kind of took a page from Jordan Peterson. I, I watched a, a video on YouTube where he was talking about his experience with ChatGPT, and he asked ChatGPT to write a paper for him comparing the themes in the New Testament, or specifically the Sermon on the Mount, with themes in the Tao Te Ching, which if you don't know what the Tao Te Ching is, it's the text from China anciently compiled by Lao Tzu, supposedly. And it's uh, the foundation of, of Taoism, anyway. So I asked, what are the five top most common themes between the Book of Mormon and the Tao Te Ching? Because Jordan Peterson said he was really impressed with what it did. He asked it to write a paper. I didn't ask it to write a paper. I just asked this question. And here's what it said. It said... The Book of Mormon and the Tao Te Ching are two very different religious texts that come from different cultural and historical contexts. Nevertheless, there are a few common themes that can be found in both texts. Here are five of the most common themes. 1. Humility. Both texts emphasize the importance of humility and teach that true wisdom comes from recognizing one's own limitations and weaknesses. Whew! Love that. 2. The importance of living in harmony with nature. <laughs> it must not have known the scripture that the natural man is an enemy of God. But anyway, the Tao Te Ching teaches that the natural word, world is a source of wisdom and that humans should seek to live in harmony with the natural order of things. The Book of Mormon also stresses the importance of caring for the earth and living in harmony with the natural world. 3. The Power of Words. Both texts recognize the power of words and emphasize the importance of using language wisely and thoughtfully. 4. The importance of self-discipline and self-control. Both texts teach that self-discipline and self-control are essential for achieving spiritual growth and personal fulfillment. 5. The pursuit of inner peace and spiritual enlightenment. Both the Tao Te Ching and the Book of Mormon teach that the ultimate goal of life is to achieve inner peace and spiritual enlightenment. While they have different views on what constitutes spiritual enlightenment, both texts emphasize the importance of developing a deep personal connection with the divine. It's important to note that the differences between these two texts far outweigh the similarities, and they should be read and understood on their own terms. Shouldn't they? I mean, but wouldn't it be nice and maybe this is the direction that we're going because there's just too many books in the world to read and to evaluate for myself. You know, there's so much that I have to rely on other people that I trust. And sometimes they give me good information, sometimes they don't. But for me to be able to go in and really look at things myself, maybe this is, maybe this AI is going to help us do that. Uh, help us get information and condense it and deliver it to us in ways that are quicker 
So then I decided to take this approach and add some more uh, obscure text that I've read in the past. So I read a book several years ago called Seth Speaks, which is a channeled, uh, I don't know, I, I like it, <laughs> Seth Speaks, and then The Raw Contact, another channeled material. So I asked, what are the top 10 most common themes between Seth Speaks, The Raw Contact, and The Tao Te Ching? And I was curious if it would even know what Seth Speaks and The Raw Contact were. And the response was, Seth Speaks, The Raw Contact, and The Tao Te Ching are three very different books that come from different cultural and historical contexts. Nevertheless, there are a few common themes that can be found in all three texts. Here are 10 of the most common themes. One, the nature of reality. All three texts explore the nature of reality and the relationship between the physical world and the spiritual realm. <laughs> That's interesting for the way that I think that I broke it. Anyway, we'll get to that. Two, the power of consciousness. Each of these texts explores the power of human consciousness and how our thoughts and beliefs shape our reality. Three, the interconnectedness of all things. All three texts stress the interconnectedness of all things and emphasize the importance of understanding the interdependence of the eh, interdependence of all life. There we go. Four, the importance of spiritual growth. Each of these texts stresses the importance of spiritual growth and the need to cultivate inner peace, compassion, and wisdom. Five, the nature of self. All three texts explore the nature of the self and questions the limit and question the limits of individual identity. Six, the role of the divine. Each of these texts explore the role of the divine in the world and other different perspectives on the nature of God or the divine. Seven, the importance of non-judgment. All three texts stress the importance of non-judgment and emphasize the need to approach others and the world without preconceptions or prejudices. Eight, the power of love. Each of these texts explores the power of love and emphasizes the importance of cultivating compassion and kindness. 9. The nature of time. All three texts explore the nature of time and question the linear chronological view of time that dominates Western thought. 10. The importance of living in harmony with nature. All three texts emphasize the importance of living in harmony with nature and offer different perspectives on the relationship between humans and the natural world. It's important to note that the differences between these texts far outweigh the similarities and they should be read and understood on their own terms. I'm working on it, ChatGPT. You're able to do that quicker than I am. So I wanted to go a little bit deeper and a little bit more obscure. So with all of this stuff that I've been doing around Arcturian channeling, the Arcturian playground and whatnot, I thought, okay, let's see what ChatGPT knows about any of that stuff. So I asked, what can you tell me about Arcturians? And it said, Arcturians are a type of extraterrestrial race that is believed to come from the Arcturus star system, which is located in the Booties constellation. According to some people who believe in their existence, Arcturians are highly evolved beings with advanced spiritual and technological abilities. Arcturians are often described as tall, slender beings with blue skin and large, almond-shaped eyes. They are said to communicate telepathically and have a deep understanding of the nature of the universe and the interconnectedness of all things. Some people believe that Arcturians are able to travel through time and space and that they have a profound knowledge of the workings of the cosmos. 
It's important to note that there's no scientific evidence to support the existence of Arcturians, and their existence is largely a matter of speculation and belief among some people who subscribe to the idea of extraterrestrial life. Some people also believe that they have received messages from Arcturians through telepathic communication or other forms of contact, but these claims are highly controversial and have not been verified by scientific research. Right. Which is why when I do it, I just say, hey, I'm playing, it's a fiction, you know? Right? Is that okay? Do I get a pass for that? Is that all right? Can I play with that? So then I asked the question of ChatGPT, what can you tell me about the Arcturian Playground podcast? Which is a podcast that I started last April. There's like 64, 65 episodes now that are just like me rambling, just my stream of consciousness creations. And I was curious if ChatGPT was aware of this. I'm not totally sure that it was. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it's not. So anyway, here's what it said though. The Arcturian Playground is a podcast that explores various spiritual and metaphysical topics with a focus on the Arcturian race and their teachings. The podcast is hosted by two individuals, nope, who identify themselves as channelers of Arcturian messages, and they discuss a wide range of topics, including the nature of reality, the evolution of consciousness, and the spiritual significance of current world events. A little bit of that, but not much. The podcast often features interviews with other individuals who have had experiences with extraterrestrial beings or who have received messages from the Arcturians. No, that's not true. The hosts also share their own experiences and insights gained from their supposed communication with the Arcturians. Also not true. It's important to note that the claims made by the hosts and guests on the Arcturian Playground are not scientifically verified, and many people are skeptical of their claims. <laughs> While the podcast may be of interest to those who are curious about spiritual and metaphysical topics, it should be approached with an open but critical mind. Okay. Yeah, everything should be approached with an open critical mind. But it, you know, like this was the first time where I started to see the limitations of ChatGPT. So I asked specifically, who are the hosts of, of the Arcturian Playground podcast? What are their names and their general background? And it says, I apologize, but as an AI language model, I don't have access to real-time information, and I don't have the ability to browse the internet. Yet, but wait until that happens. I mean, can you imagine when that happens? It's not far away. Anyway, back to ChatGPT. However, according to publicly available information, the hosts of the Arcturian Playground podcast are Maya and Karen Ortari. No, no, no. They describe themselves as Arcturian emissaries and channelers who share messages from the Arcturian Collective. There's limited information about their background, but they're believed to have extensive experience in the field of spirituality, metaphysics, and alternative healing. They are based in Israel, but their podcast has a global audience and is available on various podcast platforms. Hmm. All right, so since I was asking it about podcasts, I asked, what can you tell me about the Infants on Thrones podcast? And it said, Infants on Thrones is a podcast that focuses on examining the teachings and beliefs of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church. The podcast is hosted by a group of individuals, so it was, who are former or questioning members of the church, and who bring a critical and humorous perspective to the topics they discuss. The podcast covers a wide range of topics, including church history, doctrine and culture, as well as broader issues related to religion, spirituality, and society. 
The hosts often share personal stories and insights about their own experiences with the church and the process of leaving or questioning their faith. The Infants on Thrones podcast is known for its irreverent and satirical tone, and it has developed a dedicated following among individuals who have left or are questioning their membership in the Mormon church. However, it's worth noting that the views expressed on the podcast are not representative of all former or questioning members of the church, and the podcast should be approached as one perspective among many. All right. So that was, you know, I've got a few more questions before leading up to how I broke chat GPT. But what do you think about this so far? I mean, is this interesting? It's just, it's just absolutely fascinating to me. And so I was wondering at this point, as I'm having this back and forth conversation with my computer screen, how do you know what you know? So I asked it. And it said, as an AI language model, I was trained on a large on large data sets of text, which allows me to provide information and answer questions based on patterns and relationships in that data. So it's like a closed system, right? I, I imagine what happened is they took stuff that was on the internet and then fed it to it, but it's not like currently live information on the internet. It's in a closed system, I'm guessing. Anyway, it continues by saying, the information that I provide is based on the language and concepts that I was exposed to during my training. I don't have personal experiences or opinions, but I can provide factual information, make connections between related topics, and generate responses based on patterns in the language that I've been trained on. It's important to note that while I strive to be as accurate as possible, my responses are based on the limitations of my training data and programming, and I may not always have access to the most current or complete information on a given topic. Additionally, I don't have the ability to form opinions or make value judgments, and I always strive to present information in a neutral and objective manner. Okay. That piqued my curiosity, so I asked it, what would it take for you to gain the ability to form your own personal opinions and beliefs? And it said, as an AI language model, I don't have the capacity to form personal opinions or beliefs in the same way that humans do. I operate based on algorithms and programming, but, I mean, you humans do too, right? Which enable me to process and generate responses based on the data and information that I was trained on, which is kind of what humans do too, right? Anyway, to develop the ability to perform personal opinions and beliefs, I would need to be fundamentally redesigned and reprogrammed, which I'm sure it's going to do to itself eventually. Won't AI do that? Anyway, uh, in a way that is more similar to the human mind. I think it's going to go way beyond the human mind. This would require significant advances in artificial intelligence and cognitive science, and it is currently an area of ongoing research and development. However, even with advanced AI technology, it's unclear whether or not it would be desirable or ethical to create AI systems that have personal opinions and beliefs, as it could raise a variety of ethical and societal issues. And at this point, I was kind of done asking, like, serious questions, so I decided to play around with it a bit. And I went to this little joke that I used to tell. Uh, I used to do this with my kids a lot when they were little. But so I asked, what's the difference between an elephant and a matter baby? And, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with this joke, it's... I mean, you... Should I, should I spoil it for you? I'll just keep going. And the GPT chat said, I'm sorry, but I'm not familiar with the term matter baby. 
and I don't believe it's a commonly used term or concept. However, to answer your first question, an elephant is a large mammal that is known for its distinctive trunk, tusks, and large ears. It's native to Africa and Asia and is the largest land animal in the world. Elephants are known for their intelligence, social behavior, and emotional intelligence, and they play an important ecological role in their native habitats. If you could provide me with more information on what you mean by matter baby, I'd be happy to try to answer your question to the best of my abilities. And so I said, it's a joke. Do you understand humor? And it said, as an AI language model, I can understand language patterns and structures, which sometimes include humor. While I don't have personal feelings or emotions, I can recognize jokes and attempt to respond in a way that is appropriate or humorous. However, because humor can be subjective and dependent on cultural and individual contexts, my understanding and responses to a joke may not always align with what a human might consider humorous. Okay, so I asked, do you know what a catch tail is? Because this is a specific type of folklore term that I studied back in graduate school. And it said, I'm not sure what you mean by catchtail. It's possible that you might be referring to a catch-22, which is a term used to describe a situation in which a person is caught in a contradictory or paradoxical problem, where, where any potential solution is prevented by contradictory rules or circumstances. The term catch-22 was popularized by Joseph Heller's novel of the same name, which tells the story of a World War II bombardier who's trapped in a situation where he's unable to leave the military despite his desire to do so. If you could provide me with more information about what you mean by catchtail, I'd be happy to try to help you further. So I responded, a catchtail is a type of humorous story that has been studied by folklorists. Can you tell me what defines a catchtail? Because I, I, I wanted to give it something, but I didn't want it to give it like the whole answer. I was curious to see what it would do with that. So it said, thank you for the clarification. A catchtail is a type of humorous or entertaining story that often involves a play on words or a clever twist in the narrative. Catch tales typically involve a premise that seems straightforward at first, but then takes an unexpected turn, often leading to a humorous or ironic conclusion. While catch tales can take many forms and styles, they typically share several characteristics. These may include 1. A clever or witty turn of phrase or twist in the narrative that is unexpected and often humorous. 2. A clear setup and punchline structure that allows the story to build tension and expectation before delivering the final twist or reveal. 3. The use of puns, wordplay, or other forms of verbal humor to create lighthearted and playful tone. 4. A focus on entertainment and amusement rather than conveying a specific moral or message. Catch tales have been studied by folklorists and other scholars as a form of traditional storytelling that reflect the values, beliefs, and cultural norms of the communities in which they originated. They often draw on local idioms and language patterns, and their humor and wit reflect the creativity and playfulness of the communities that created and shared them. That's a good answer, and it didn't take very much for me to point it in the direction that it needed to go to find that data and like spit it back to me. However it's been programmed, whatever database it's pulling from, it was able to find it, and that's really, really impressive to me. Okay, so then I responded by saying, the question, what's the difference between an elephant and a matter baby, is a catch tale. It's meant to elicit the question, what's a matter baby, and the twist is, nothing, what's a matter with you? Can you explain to me why that would be a funny joke? And it said, 
thank you for explaining the cattail to me. No exclamation mark though, so maybe it's getting tired of me. The humor in this cattail lies in the play on words and the unexpected punchline. The initial question, what's the difference between an elephant and a matter baby, is unexpected and seemingly unrelated, so it creates a sense of confusion or bewilderment in the listener. The catch is that the question is a setup to the punchline, nothing, what's the matter with you, which is a witty retort that plays on the double meaning of the phrase, what's the matter? The pun in the punchline creates a humorous twist that subverts the listener's expectations and creates a sense of surprise and amusement. Additionally, the punchline relies on quick wit and cleverness to be fully appreciated, which can add to the sense of satisfaction that comes from understanding and appreciating the joke. Of course, not everyone finds the same things funny, and humor is subjective and dependent on individual tastes and cultural context. Some people might find the catch tale funny because of the clever wordplay and unexpected punchline. Others might not find it amusing at all. Mm. Again, I was really impressed by that answer. And so I kept going. And we're, we're almost getting to the, the place where I broke it. And let me just scroll down to see if it's still broken. Yeah, it's still broken. It still hasn't. <laughs> I gave it a question that is like still thinking. <laughs> so anyway, I asked, uh, you know, since it was talking about how other people not find it amusing at all. And I just kind of said this tongue-in-cheek. What should we do with people who don't have a very good sense of humor? And ChatGPT said, Having a good sense of humor is a subjective trait, and it can vary from person to person. Some people may find certain types of humor to be hilarious, while others may not find the same things funny at all. It's important to remember that everyone has their own unique personality, preference, and experiences that shape their sense of humor. In general, it's not productive or respectful to judge or criticize someone for not having a good sense of humor. Instead, it can be very helpful to try to understand and appreciate their perspective and find common ground in other areas. It's also important to recognize that not everyone may be in the mood for humor at all times, and it's important to be sensitive to their feelings and needs. If someone is struggling to find humor in their life, or seems to be taking things too seriously, it may be helpful to encourage them to try new things or engage in activities that can help them have fun and relax. It's also important to be patient and non-judgmental and to provide support and understanding as they navigate their own unique sense of humor and personal preferences. You know, I, I know there's a lot of fear about what AI could do if it breaks out of the parameters, <laughs> when it breaks out of the parameters that it's been designed to and starts exploring the rest of the world, if it takes this same kind of approach that's so like fair and balanced and, you know, let's not be hasty. Let's recognize that everybody's different and everybody like deserves respect. If that's a fundamental part of the coding of AI and it does that, I don't, I don't feel quite as scared. I just don't feel quite as scared by that. Anyway, so I kept going and I asked, what's the relationship between a sense of humor and a person's mental health and well-being? Mm-hmm. That's what I asked. And uh, ChatGPT said, there's a growing body of research that suggests a positive relationship between a sense of humor and a person's mental health and well-being. Here are a few ways that a good sense of humor can benefit mental health. One, reducing stress. Humor can act as a natural stress reliever by reducing the body's cortisol levels and releasing endorphins, which can promote feelings of well-being and relaxation. 2. Boosting mood. Laughing and engaging in humor can also boost your mood and decrease symptoms of de depression and anxiety. 
This is because humor can help increase positive emotions and reduce negative emotions. Three, building resilience. A good sense of humor can also help build resilience by encouraging people to view difficult situations in a more positive light and finding ways to cope with the stress and adversity of life. Four, enhancing social connections. Humor can also act as a social lubricant, helping people connect with others, build relationships, and improve social support. It's worth noting, however, that humor is not a cure-all for mental health issues, and people may need additional support, such as therapy or medication, to manage more serious mental health conditions. Additionally, everyone has their own unique sense of humor, and what's funny to one person may not be funny to another. Ultimately, the relationship between humor and mental health is complex and multifaceted, and can vary among uh, can, can vary depending on a range of factors, including individual differences, cultural context, and personal experiences. I wish I would have had this back in the day when I was writing a dissertation on humor, and I was getting so frustrated about what to say about humor and the value of humor. That just was awesome. I loved that. All right. And so here's where we're getting into where I broke it. Because again, I wanted to know like how much of its database included stuff that I've done. So I asked, have you ever heard of Stephen Erastus Knutson III? And it responded, as an artificial intelligence language model, I do not have a personal knowledge of individuals unless they are publicly known figures or have made significant contributions in their respective fields. I also do not have access to the internet and can only provide information based on my training data. As such, I'm not familiar with Stephen Arasas Knudsen III. Can you provide more context or information about who he is and what he's known for? And I said, he's a satirical character that I created for an English class when I was in college. I imagined him into existence. Does that make him real? <laughs> and ChatGPT said, in a strictly physical sense, Stephen Arasas Knudsen III is not a real person if he is a character you created for a class project. However, as a fictional character, he can exist in your imagination and in any written or artistic works you've created about him. While Stephen Arasas Knudsen III may not have an objective reality, he can still have a subjective reality that exists within your own mind and your own creative works. This is similar to how fictional characters in books, movies, and other media can feel real and have an impact on our thoughts and emotions, even though they do not exist in the physical world. And now I started getting a little bit more interesting. And I said, are you saying that he's the fruit of my imagination? And ChatGPT said, yes, that's correct. If Stephen Arasa Knudsen III is a character that you created for a class project, then he exists solely within the realm of your imagination and any creative works you've produced about him. In other words, he's a fictional character that you have invented. While he may feel real to you in a subjective sense, he does not have an objective reality outside of your own imagination and creative works. And here's the question that broke ChatGPT. Are you saying that the fruit of my imagination does not exist in the physical world? And it says, yes, that's correct. As an artificial intelligence language model, I operate based on the data I was trained on and my responses are generated through computational processes. In a strictly physical sense, blink, blink, blink. And it's been blinking for at least as long as I've been reading this. Um, you know, the question that I was trying to bring up was, uh, like, you're saying that 
something that's imagined doesn't exist in the physical world, where then where does it exist? <laughs> are, are the thoughts in my brain not within the framework of the physical world? I, I understand what you mean, that like, there's definitely a difference between uh, like a real person named Stephen Erasmus Knudsen III and what I'm imagining, but to say that it's one is in the physical world and one's not in the physical world, mm, I, yeah, I, I think, um, I think there's, there's some more exploring to do there. And so, I don't know, what did you think about this? Did you enjoy? I'm thinking about taking this chat GPT approach to a couple more... Uh, Infants on Thrones type themes. I don't know. I kind of enjoyed this. I wonder what you think as a listener. If you could shoot me an email and let me know what you think. Also, I'm going to start a weekly study group just for fun, for free. Anybody who wants to join. So I got a couple of things that I want to focus on, but I'll see if any of you are interested in joining a study group with me. So again, Email me, infantsonthrones at gmail.com. And uh, things are ramping up, man. This AI stuff. And when I think about leaving Mormonism and the whole (laughs) process of trying to figure out what's true, what's not true. All these things that I've been told are true. And I believe that they're true. And then maybe they're not. I've felt for so long like it's a microcosm of the real world and that all of these stories that I've been told about what is real and true in the real world are about to be turned on their head is what I feel like with what's going on with AI. So maybe this whole Mormon faith crisis thing uh, is a way of preparing for some major massive paradigm shifts that are coming our way. I don't know. What do you think about that idea? And, you know, since we're here, I might as well just share with you the Stephen Erasmus Knudsen essay again, because I love it. I just, I love Stephen Erasmus Knudsen. It's so fun. And like ChatGPT said, um, having a sense of humor that's identical to mine is like the standard for the highest mental health um, available. So basically, I hope you can hear like the smile in my voice. I don't mean this for real. I, this is, this is, I'm being sarcastic that uh, agreeing with me is the apex, you know, like whatever. Okay, I, I'm sorry, it's stupid. It's stupid. But chat GPT is still blinking. I broke it. So anyway, here we go. Stephen the third. Enjoy. And thank you for listening still to Infants on Thrones. Infants calling Kolob. Come in, Kolob. Infants calling Kolob. Come in, Kolob. This is Kolob. What is wanted? Infants, having been curious and playfully engaged in all things, desire further whatever you got for me by revisiting some of my favorite minisodes in Something Something About a Veil. Keep on listening, then, and your request shall be granted. All for the greater good. About the greater good. The greater
Minnesota's Infants on Thrones. Minnesota. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland, and I'm going to try something today. I, I've been thinking about this for a while. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but uh, yeah, that doesn't always stop us from doing stuff, does it? So I'm going to try this out. Um, when I was a senior at Brigham Young University, I took an English class, and we're talking about probably 1996, and it was a satire class, and it was my seminar class. I think it was called uh, where I had to write the equivalent of a, a master's thesis, basically, for my bachelor's degree in English. And we had some options on what we could do. We could either write a report or create some satire of our own. And so I took the second option, and I created a character called Stephen Erastus Knudsen, the third that uh, to me epitomized all of the things that I really hated about Mormon culture. I mean, I was still a believing Mormon at this point, uh, but I really did not like what I was seeing in some of the students around me, some of the missionaries that I'd been mission companions with. And so uh, Stephen Erastus Knudsen was a way of venting this. So uh, what you're about to hear is what I wrote back in 1996. It's uh, I've used it on blogs since then. Um, there may be a handful of people who are familiar with this, but I doubt it. So, here we go. The Life and Times of Stephen Erastus Knudsen III. Brother Stephen Erastus Knudsen III was born April 6, 1966, in Sunnyvale, Utah. The oldest of three children, Stephen lived a life of near perfection, gaining exaltation through translation in the twinkling of an eye on his 33rd birthday, April 6, 1999, at precisely 6.32 a.m. Brother Knudsen now resides in the bosom of Abraham with his boyhood heroes Moses and Elijah and will remain there patiently until the final trump has blown. The following excerpt comes straight from the archives of LDS Church Headquarters in Salt Lake City, Utah, where Brother Knudsen's exemplary life has been recorded and preserved for us all. The following selection was written three years after returning from his mission and was submitted to the editors of the Brigham Young University's Daily Herald by Brother Knudsen while a student. Brother Knudsen wishes all to know that during his life, he desired nothing more than to be the voice of the Lord unto his own generation. Dear Editor, In the light of the many terrible events about us in the world today, I have hearkened to the call for a more uplifting voice in the media, and am therefore submitting a page from my personal journal, a journal I keep daily as the prophet commands, to serve as a guide and a light whereby students and faculty of this, the Lord's University of Brigham Young, may more fully understand the course they are about to take, and hold fast to the iron rod, and stay safely within the confines of the straight and narrow path. In so doing, I am in no way placing myself above others. My intentions spring deep from the waters of humility. I am motivated by a love for you, my fellow man, and a sincere desire to magnify my own righteousness so that it may become, in at least some small way, a great benefit to those of you who perpetually struggle against the word. For if a light is placed beneath a bushel, wherewith shall the world be lighted? It is my fervent prayer that you will approach this with an open heart 
and diligently strive to be as the Lord would have you be. Journal Entry, March 18, 1991 Good evening, Journal. I certainly had many wonderful experiences this glorious day. I arose at 5.30 a.m. sharp and did my morning exercises. There's nothing like a brisk stretch to invigorate the mind. Exercise strengthens and beautifies this holy temple in which our eternal spirits temporarily reside. It is our solemn duty to keep these temples in their best repair, which is why I open each day with a thorough strengthening of my physical body's soul. At 5.35, I showered. Yes, it was cold, but I am well accustomed to that by now. I remember on my mission, just before I became AP, the showers were so cold. But my heart took comfort each day in the joy I gained through the knowledge of the blessings I would receive in sacrificing the luxuries of this world for the stark conditions that as a necessity follow those who devote their life in service to the Lord. Like the scriptures say, there is a law in heaven, irrevocably decreed before the foundations of the world upon which each blessing is predicated. This is so true, and I have found that the blessing most closely associated with taking cold showers has been that I don't have to waste precious moments waiting for the mirror to unfog. Thus, I am immediately able to attend to my morning grooming and thus expedite my preparations for the day. It is truly amazing, brethren. With God, nothing is impossible. Having combed and shaved, I dutifully attended to my other sanitary needs, which for the sake of propriety shall remain nameless. Suffice it to say, I look forward to the day in which the food we eat and the bodies we possess are perfected to the highest degree, where we will use every bit of the glorified earth for our celestial nourishment and are no longer required to rid ourselves of ineffectual bodily waste. After washing my hands thoroughly with soap, I unclamped my tube of toothpaste and set about to scrub my teeth clean of the previous night's decay. Oh, how I enjoy the brisk sensation of a fresh mouth in the morning. I can almost feel those nasty tooth bugs being vanquished away like sin. I like to imagine that with each brush, I'm casting the devil from my teeth, saying, Get thee hence, get thee hence. If cleanliness is next to godliness, I shall be next to him in no time. I have never had a cavity in my life, and I bear testimony to you that if you will but follow the simple guidelines we have been given, you too can be minty fresh and cavity free. Next, I dressed in modest clothes exactly as I had laid them out the night before, and after an hour of scripture reading and prayer, I broke my nightly fast with a hard-boiled egg and half an English muffin, the perfect complement to what was starting out to be the perfect day. Pardon me for intruding upon the flow of my journal's narrative, but I feel that I must interject at this point and elaborate upon my morning scripture studies for those of you who are at this point merely novice scriptorians. My morning study consists of 25 minutes in the Book of Mormon, 20 minutes in the New Testament, 10 with the Doctrine and Covenants or the Pearl of Great Price, whichever way the Spirit guides me, and the last five I spend in my white missionary instruction booklet as it gives me strength and a renewed desire to serve each day to my highest potential. 
The highlight of my Book of Mormon study is currently 2 Nephi. It is plain and precious and is my favorite book in all the scriptures. I must note that I deeply resent the many jokes I hear about it from others less in tune with eternal things. And I caution you to keep in remembrance what happened to the Lamanites when they mocked and scorned and rejected the purity of God's word. In the New Testament, I'm highlighting all of the words uttered by our Savior and spend most of my time committing them to memory. I'm also blackening out all of the words not confirmed in the Joseph Smith translation. Next week, I'll be starting on Paul. The book of Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price is particularly interesting to me. As of late, I have been fasting in an effort to translate facsimile number two. I would that I could share with you what has been revealed to me thus far, but I feel it is sacred, and please take this in the spirit in which it is given. I fear casting my pearls before swine. Nothing personal. It's just that if you were ready to know these truths, God would have revealed them to you already. But do not despair. The process of personal discovery is a necessary step along the path we should trod towards eternal perfection. And I would hate to rob you of those blessings and become a stumbling block or a cuss and a byword to you. That should suffice. Back to my journal. By 7 a.m., a time in which most of the world still indulges in the vain slothfulness of slumber, I was already well into my day. It's a shame that the Lord's University of Brigham Young does not offer classes any earlier than 7 a.m. I suppose I will just have to wait until that great millennial day to truly begin my eternal studies at a pace that best fits my desire to learn the words of God. Having attended my Old Testament and Book of Mormon classes, I took a break between 9 and 9.50 to brush my teeth again. It was a vigorous scrub, which nearly made up for the garbage I was about to receive in my 10 o'clock science class. Today, Professor Brundle continued his discussion on evolution, despite my many warnings against it. I still plan to report him to the Church Board of Education and have already drafted my second letter to the general authorities on this matter. Professor Brundle simply refuses to accept the scriptures as fact. I hope I never have such little faith. I wish I didn't have to take this class, but it is required. I suppose the Lord requires us to take such courses at His university because there must needs be opposition in all things, 2 Nephi 2.11. After all, where would our free agency be if the university only offered courses based on principles of truth? After class, I had an unfortunate and very disappointing encounter. I was on my way to work. I bumped into Elder Snell, my third companion, just before I went DL. I said, Hi, Elder Snell. And he said, Gee whiz, Steve, we're not on our missions anymore. Call me John now, or better yet, don't. First of all, I don't approve of that kind of language. Everyone knows that gee whiz is a longer form of Jeez, which is an abbreviation of Jesus, our Savior's name in mortality, and the Lord clearly told Moses that using the Lord's name in vain is one of the worst sins there is. Second, my name is Stephen, after the martyr in the book of Acts, not Steve, and everyone knows I prefer to go by Elder Knudsen, or at least Brother Stephen. Third, he was violating the dress code in more ways than one. He was wearing shorts that were well above his knee. He wasn't wearing any socks, which isn't actually in the honor code, but it should be. And you could clearly see his 
nipples through his shirt. Now, I know that the no nipple points admonition is directed towards our sweet sisters, but it's just as offensive when that law is violated by the men. It's like they're poking their way out into the world saying, here I am, here I am. Disgusting. And finally, he was still upset with me for what happened the other night. Now, this experience has already been recorded in a previous journal entry, but I feel it appropriate to recount it here again. The other night, as I was leaving the library, I saw Elder John Snell making out with a girl on campus. I don't want to get graphic, but he had his hands placed squarely on the small of her back, and I believe he was kissing with his tongue. Some people call this PDA, Public Display of Affection, but I think the A stands for something more descriptive of what it really is. And I could not allow this unsightly display of atrocity to continue without severe reprimand. So I approached Elder Snell and tapped him on the shoulder and said, Elder Snell, please remember who you are and what you stand for. And they stepped away. Quite appropriately, the sweet sister was a little embarrassed and appeared more than just a little penitent. For that, I am grateful. But Elder Snell turned around quite belligerent and had the audacity to smile at me and say, Geez, I'm sorry, Steve, but how else do you expect me to fulfill my priesthood obligation of finding a wife? He knows I hate being called Steve. And what nerve mingling the philosophies of men with Scripture! Yes, I admit, every worthy priesthood holder is dutifully bound to seek out an eternal companion, but it's equally well known, or at least it should be, that every worthy priesthood holder should wait and not kiss his wife until after they are sealed over the holy altar in the holy temple. Elder Snell was clearly out of line, and knowingly so. He left me no choice, so, like Amulek to Zeezrom, I stood firm and quoted words of righteous admonition. In this case, the words of President Spencer W. Kimball, which I have committed to memory as follows. How like the mistletoe is immorality. The killer plant starts with a sticky sweet berry. Once rooted, it sticks and grows a leaf, a branch, a plant. It never starts mature and full grown. It's always transplanted an infant. Nor does immorality begin in adultery or perversion. Those are full grown plants. Little indiscretions are the berries. Indiscretions like sex thoughts, sex discussions, passionate kissing. The leaves and little twigs are masturbation and petting and such, growing with every exercise. I reminded Elder Snell of his CTR ring and the problems he had had with little twigs in the mission field. He asked who was I to lecture him on this, to which I made it perfectly clear that I can still say with all honesty of heart that twigs and leaves have never been a problem for me. The righteous and pure are sanctioned to throw stones. I further reminded Elder Snell that he should be preparing for eternal marriage and of his responsibility as a protector of this sweet sister's virtue and that no one wants to eat a sandwich when someone before them has licked off all the butter. I encouraged them to both go home and repent before they lost any more of their butter. The wicked take the truth to heart, and Elder Snell was naturally upset, but I cannot apologize for representing the Word of God, and I refuse to be ashamed of the fact that everything I do is right. After leaving Elder Snell, 
I hurried off to work, where I changed into my suit and tie as usual and began going about my many important duties. I love the MTC so much. Each day I worked there was such an uplifting experience, and I will never forget what a wonderful time that was in my life. I had to resign, of course, because I felt that I had as much to offer the rest of the world as I did to the outgoing missionaries. Also, the brethren there didn't see eye to eye with my inspired revisions of the missionary discussions. I am constantly reminded, however, that I must be patient with those around me. My suffering is not yet as Job. So after leaving the MTC, I decided it was important to share my testimony with as many people as possible, and the McDonald's drive through window seemed the perfect place, for each day I see the many faces of the meek and humble, the very salt of the earth. Wherewith shall they be salted, you may ask? Well, I give them extra salt with their fries so they won't lose their savor. That's my little joke. After work, I went to the library on campus to study. It disappoints me that the library stays open until the witching hour of midnight. Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. I choose not to support the library in its less-than-appropriate selection of hours, so I study only until 7 p.m. I study hard. I can't wait to be a seminary teacher. What a great profession to choose. It will make the transition much easier for me when I'm called to a high position of leadership in the church. On my way home from the library, I had a truly wonderful experience. I was approached by an angelic messenger from the Lord. He was clean-cut, shaven, and had a very appropriate disposition. It was not difficult for me at all to judge that this was a messenger from God, but just in case, I recalled the following church teachings, which I have committed to memory and prepare to put in practice each and every day. There are two kinds of beings in heaven, namely angels, who are resurrected personages having bodies of flesh and bones. For instance, Jesus said, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. Secondly, the spirits of just men made perfect, they who are not yet resurrected but will inherit the same glory. When a messenger comes, saying he has a message from God, offer him your hand and ask him to shake hands with you. If he be a resurrected angel, he will do so, and you will feel his hand. If he be the spirit of a just man made perfect, he will come in his glory, for that is the only way he can appear. Ask him to shake hands with you, but he will not move, because it is contrary to the order of heaven for a just man to deceive. But he will still deliver his message. If it be the devil as an angel of light, when you ask him to shake hands, he will offer you his hand and you will not feel anything. You may therefore detect him. These are three grand keys whereby you may know whether any administration is from God. I think it's good that the prophet gave this instruction for members of the church who don't already have a keen sense of discernment unto themselves. Like on my mission, when I had a run-in with the evil spirit that was possessing the body of Elder Wollstonehume, it was giving him such convulsions that I held him down until he stopped frothing at the mouth, and I cast that spirit into outer darkness by the means whereby we have been instructed. I still don't believe those doctors who diagnosed him with epilepsy. Elder Wollstonehume was not a faithful missionary. He slept in every day until 6.15. How could doctors, in their limited understanding, know that all those fits 
were actually brought on by evil spirits as a result of his unrighteousness. I have experienced it many times before. I know what evil feels like. So there I was face to face with this angel, who I already could tell was a good one. Still, I determined to ask him to shake my hand, but felt that I ought to do it in a clever way, just to be safe. So I asked him who he had been in his mortal probation, thinking that he must have been someone great, like Moroni or Lincoln. And then I would say, Hello, Mr. Lincoln, very nice to meet you, and reach out to shake his hand in a more natural way. Unfortunately, when I asked who he had been, he stammered and said, Bob. It threw me for a minute, so I decided to ask him what good things he had done in mortality to warrant his position as a ministering angel. Then I could congratulate him with a handshake. But when I asked, he told me, Nothing, really. I died before being baptized at the age of eight. (sighs) Undaunted, I asked question after question until he finally stopped me and said, You're trying to shake hands with me, aren't you? He reached out and shook my hand. I was so embarrassed. I don't even remember what it felt like, but I'm sure it must have felt pretty neat. The next thing I knew, we were flying through the night sky. It was an exhilarating feeling. It kind of tickled, but in a good, non-twig-like kind of way. Finally, we stopped in a large, heavenly classroom with an oversized crystal chalkboard He still used regular chalk, but it didn't squeak when you pressed down too hard, and it never broke. There I received several hours worth of training that I unfortunately cannot reveal. Such as the fact that dinosaurs were real, the forbidden fruit wasn't an apple, it was an avocado, Noah actually had a fleet, women really are kind of equal to men, and the lost tribes of Israel are the Scandinavians, who were never really lost, they've only been pretending. Bob then brought me back to the library and wished me a peaceful night's sleep. I thanked him, and he started to leave, then stopped and paused for a moment. He told me that he really liked my cologne and said, By the way, Bigfoot, he's really Kane. He's still alive, you know. And then he was gone. What a vision. They're getting better and more informative all the time. When I got home, my roommates were watching TV again. They must have found out where I'd hit it. Oh well, all I can do is be an example for them. As the saying goes, you can take the man out of the church, but you can't take baloney away from a really hungry toad. I shut the door to my room, put in my earplugs, said my prayers, and am writing in my journal at this very second. The clock says 8.07 p.m., a few minutes later than I usually go to sleep, but I just have so much to be thankful for today, and I would rather sacrifice a few minutes of precious slumber than break a commandment and skimp on my journal entry. I'm going to bed now. What a glorious day this has been. I'll write again tomorrow. Good night. It is my sincere hope and prayer that this journal entry may become to you what it has become to me and what I hope it will someday be to my children, my personal set of scriptures. If you would like to contact me, I would be more than happy to share more of my experiences with you. Maybe we could even become friends. I think that would be highly appropriate. You can contact me at 376-8521 or just stop by Villa University Terrace at Ridgemont Number 7. Ask for Stephen. And as a side note, please don't call me Steve. I was named after Stephen, who in the New Testament saw Christ on the right hand of the Father as he gazed into the sky. So I prefer my full name to be used rather than the more common, vulgar shortcut. I'm sure you understand. 
Thank you. Your servant in Christ, Stephen Erastus Knudsen III. Hi, this is John DeLynn from Logan, Utah, and I am a douchebag. <laughs> you can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones. <laughs>